been uh, singing my little heart out and, and now my voice I can feel is just on the edge of uh, disappearing. So uh, we're going to hope the voice holds out this morning. But uh, let's, let's read together first of all, shall we, from, uh, from Romans chapter 15. And I want to start from verse 13. May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge and competent to instruct one another. I have written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and miracles through the power of the Spirit. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. Let's just pray together, shall we, and then then we'll uh, get stuck into this passage. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, these are not empty words on a page, but it's the, the powerful word that you bring to us by your Holy Spirit that builds faith within us, that, that brings instruction, that brings conviction, that brings encouragement. And Lord, I just pray this morning that we might receive those things from your word. Just bless us, I pray, as we look into this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you can remember when I last spoke, which was kind of beginning of last month, I spoke over two weeks about how we must bring a challenge to the culture that we live in. And uh, to do that, I expanded Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, particularly verse 2, that says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we looked, first of all, at how you do that personally, how you have a personal faith that challenges the culture in which we live. And we looked at the story of Daniel, because Daniel was a guy who was in exile. He was in a a culture that was foreign to him. And yet he chose to worship God. And he didn't conform to the patterns of the world that was around him. And as a result, he was transformed. He was transformed inwardly and it showed on the outside. And he began to to have a transforming effect on the world around him. So that was the first week. And then the second week, we kind of zoomed back and, and looked at the whole church. To see how that as a church we must challenge the culture in which we live. And if you remember we looked at the prophetic picture of the river of life in Ezekiel 47. And that's this wonderful picture of the dynamic flow of the Holy Spirit as a river. 
And it's a river that flows from the temple and out into the sea. And the Holy Spirit, with all this dynamic power and excitement, flows from the church. Flows through us and in us, but then out into the world. And there's this wonderful part of that picture where the the river meets the sea. And the fresh water pushes back the salt water and it's a place of, of abundant life. And what we did is we, we looked at the last chapters of Romans. Romans chapters 12, 13, 14 and 15. And we did a survey of those chapters to see how Paul was telling the Roman church that they should stand distinct from the culture in which they lived. So when he said to them, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world... He was kind of summarising and introducing what was to come. And so we looked at what was to come. And it was things like we need to think community. Not thinking about our own individual needs all the time. It was that we need to look for ways to bless people and love people. And avoid being cynical and, and harsh with people. It was that we need to be a people who are led by the Spirit, not led by laws and rules. And that brings us really to the end of the the book of Romans. It brings us to this passage in Romans 15 that we've just read from. And what we see is that Romans ends, actually as Romans begins, with a statement of Paul's mission, his primary mission. I thought Terry Virgo brought an excellent uh, presentation of the gospel last week. So clear, so, so well expounded. But the passage he used was Romans chapter 1. And Romans chapter 1 and, and Romans chapter 15, they kind of stand like bookends at the, the beginning and, and the end of that letter. Saying this is the most important thing. This was Paul's primary mission. It was the gospel. And Paul was keen to point out that not only as a church do we need to stand distinct from the culture and challenge the culture, but we must also know how to engage the culture, how to actually get out there and mix our culture with the gospel. And Paul could say that this is exactly what he had done. So in verse 19 he said, From Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. You see, Paul wasn't principally a theologian. You can read books like Romans and and, and Ephesians and you think, wow, Paul must have just loved to have kind of grappled with these ideas and, and got them down onto paper. But Paul wasn't principally a theologian. You can think that maybe Paul was principally kind of pastoral and and that's what he loved to do, to go back to churches and and equip them and put in foundations and, and appoint elders. Was Paul a pastor? Well, these things were important. But his number one mission was the spread of the gospel. His calling, his burden that had to be discharged was to see the gospel go out effectively. That's the burden that that he had to discharge. So as a church, as people in the church, I do think it is so important that we know not just how to challenge our culture, but how to engage it with the gospel. Well, Romans, as a letter, was written 
at a point in time, obviously. And that point in time coincides with the end of the book of Acts. As you know, Acts is kind of like a book of history, so it fits in time. And if you imagine time sort of carrying on, and and at the end you've got Paul's ministry. And then the book of Acts ends, Paul's ministry continued... But actually, the point at which he wrote to the Romans, and we have it as the book of Romans in our Bibles, is right sort of there, within a year or two, of the the book of Acts. And so, that's quite useful. Because when you read a statement like, from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I've proclaimed the gospel, you think, well, I wish wish we had a bit more information on that. Well, we do have a bit more information on that. Because all that is contained in, in what we have in Acts. Now, I thought it might be useful to uh, see a map. Let's put the map up. Can you see that? Sort of here is the Mediterranean Sea. I don't know if that is at all clear to you. That's the, the uh, Mediterranean. And so Jerusalem, you probably know, is down here at the bottom right. Most people know where Jerusalem is. You may be less sure where Illyricum is. Illyricum is this whole region up here, which is now Albania and all the countries that used to be Yugoslavia that I now can't pronounce. Now, we have no actual uh, record that Paul went up into Illyricum, and it may just mean that he got as far as the, the, the border to Illyricum, there at the top of Greece. But anyway, that was sort of covers the whole region around the Mediterranean, And he was saying, from Jerusalem in this big arc, all the way round to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel. Now, there are ten key cities that Paul visited in that time. There was um, Cyprus, which is obviously not a city, that's a, a nation, an island. There was Poseidon Antioch. That's a different Antioch to the one that Paul was sent from and and the one that we refer to often when we say we're an Antioch church. There's another place called Antioch, just to confuse. And uh, so there was that city, Poseidon Antioch, it's usually referred to as. There was Iconium. There was Lystra. There was Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth and Ephesus. And you can read about them in Acts chapters 13 to 20. And obviously we're not going to read all those eight chapters now. But it's good to read that sometimes. You get a real feel for what Paul did and where he went. Just read read through it. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to kind of survey those chapters. We're going to have a look through. We're going to see how Paul engaged the culture. So when he turned up in a place, when he thought, how am I going to see the the gospel get into this place? How did he engage with the culture? And uh, we're going to keep this quite light, hopefully, because it's a a warm, sunny summer's day and it's a summer holiday. And, you know, hopefully we'll uh, we'll not get too heavy along the way. I really wish, okay, that, that I was J. John preaching this sermon Because, let's face it, if J. John was preaching this sermon, it would be better. Because he'd have stories. You know, he'd he'd be able to say, yeah, I was in this place, this happened, and this place, and this happened. And, And all I can say is, I stand before you with immense humility. 
And uh, yeah, I, I really considered in, in looking at this subject, I thought, am I even qualified to stand before you and, and talk about how to, to, you know, engage our culture with the gospel? Because, you know, I, I so don't feel I've got this sorted. And so I just come sort of faithfully wanting to look at scripture and bring that to you. But please understand that I come before you humbly. And, uh, and I take some comfort from the fact that as I look out at you, there may be a few J. Johns out there. I pray that there are. But uh, probably most of you are more like me. And, and we're just kind of, you know, grappling with this stuff and, and trying to do the best we can. But let's have a look then. Let's have a look at how Paul engaged with the culture. Well, first of all, five points. This is number one. He started on familiar ground. When Paul arrived in a new place, invariably what he did, first of all, was he headed to the synagogue. And in the synagogue, he would find a little group of Jews that he could begin to talk to. Let's look at an example. Acts 13, verse 5. These verses are up on the the screen, hopefully. When Paul was in Cyprus, it says this. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. When he got to Antioch, Acts 13 again, in verse 14, it says, On the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down. In Iconium, in Acts 14, it says, At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. You see the same thing in Thessalonica, in Berea. In other places as well. This is what Paul did. He, he made a beeline for the synagogue. Now, what are we supposed to learn from this? Are we supposed to find the synagogue? I don't think Winchester has a synagogue, as far as I'm aware. I don't think we're meant to go to the synagogue. The thing is, you see, that Paul was a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, as that kind of respected Orthodox Jewish sect, he had respect and he had standing. Paul was trained by a, a Jew called Gamaliel. And it says in Acts 5 how this chap Gamaliel was widely respected and honoured. And so Paul himself would have, would have been a known person. He had respect. He had standing. So what Paul did when he arrived in a new place was he went to his own people. He, he did the easy thing. It was, it was an easy inroad. And for Paul, they were familiar surroundings. He kind of knew the customs. He knew where he fitted in. He knew how it worked. And also, it was a context where people would readily listen to him. He already had a voice in that place. So how are we going to engage our culture? Well, I would say start where you are. Start where you fit in already. Start where you already have a place. Let me ask you, what, what do you do? Are you a, a teacher? Start with, with teachers. Are you a, a mum at the, the school gate? I, I pick up Jake from, from school on a, a Monday and uh, I find the school gate quite a fascinating place. 
and uh, I kind of watch what's going on. I must admit, I tend to try and sort of run in and run out, and I just about escape with my life. But, uh, but as I look at mums there, and, and the odd dad, but mostly mums, they just look relaxed. They just look, yeah, this is a place, I'm here every day, you know, I just feel comfortable here. It's familiar surroundings. Let me ask you, what are you good at? Where do you have a voice? Do you sit on a, a PTA or you're a governor? Are you in a, uh, a caring profession where you're looking after old folk or, or, uh, or those in, in need of care? Do you sit on boards or, or committees or, or other groups? You see, these are God-given opportunities. These are places where you already fit in. What do you enjoy doing? Are you into football? Then uh, go, and, go and play football. Are you into arts and crafts? Then, then go, and, go and do arts and crafts. You see, it's kind of like looking for the, the easy thing. Looking for, for the, the best fit for you. I, I play football. I try to. I'm not very good. On, uh, on a Monday evening. And that's a way of kind of meeting non-Christians. Because we have some non-Christian guys who play with us, which is great. They have a good time. But I do something else. I then go to the pub after I play football. I only have one drink, I hasten to add. But, uh, but I, I do, I go, I, that's my habit now, is to go to the pub after I play football. My current place, I tell you, is the Bell on St. Cross. It's a fine establishment. And, uh, and actually, I'm just beginning to, to know the people who are in the Bell on a, on a Monday night. And I've I mean, some of them are a bit odd. I don't know if there's any here this morning. I kind of hope not. But, uh, but, but they are. And yet it's a place. I tell you, it's no hardship for me whatsoever. I just love, love doing it. It's easy. And yet suddenly there is a group of people who are familiar to me. I'm familiar to them. And, uh, and it's, it's a place where if I start talking, they're likely to start listening just because, you know, we've got to that place in our relationship. So where am I going to start engaging the gospel, engaging the culture with the gospel? Well, I think I should start there, because it's easy. I have an inroad. God has made you like you are, with your character, with your gifting, in order to reach a specific group of people. And you might say, well, I'm not that sporty, I'm not that extrovert. But there is a group of people somewhere that God has prepared for you. Because he's made you like you are to reach them. So imagine that you were to arrive in a new city. Who would you look for? What sort of people would you try and make connection with? Well, hopefully you'd look for a church to join. But apart from that, who would you look for? What group of people would you seek out? Because it it would just, it would make your life easier and you'd think it was fun and familiar. Well, I believe that's where we start. Paul started on familiar ground. Secondly, He chatted with the people he met. Let's have a look at Philippi in Acts 16. It says this, I'll just read this bit to you. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. 
when she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us into her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Now, see, on that occasion, Paul was just going about his business. He was actually looking for, for somewhere to pray. And there weren't many Jews in Philippi. There wasn't enough to have a synagogue. And what the Jews used to do, if there wasn't a synagogue, it was their kind of practice to gather down by the river, the few of them that there were around. So that's why Paul headed down to the river. He was looking for somewhere to pray. But instead, he found a group of of women there, and he just began to chat. He just engaged them in conversation. Well, I think we just need to be ready to chat with people we come across. Now, for some of you, you will think, well, that's no big deal. I do that anyway. But for others of you, and I include myself in that camp, I don't find this easy. And you may not find this easy. And uh, this week, since, uh, you know, since I've had it in my heart to, to, to bring this this morning, I've paid very close attention to the people I've come in contact with through this week. And I've tried very hard to chat. I've tried, uh, you know, against my kind of natural inclinations, I've tried to strike up conversation. And uh, this kind of started on, on Monday, when uh, me and Ali were, were in, uh, in the Marks and Spencers coffee shop, having a cup of tea, and there's lots of tables for two there, and there was one person sat on every table for two, and uh, because nobody wanted to face the wall, they were all facing the shop, and it just looked ridiculous. All these people sat on their own, drinking their tea, looking the same. It looked like a typist pool. You know, everybody sat at tables. And you thought, if these people just got together and had a chat, they'd have a great time. Most of them were sort of of older years, but but they would. But uh, anyway, I was there with Ali on business. I didn't talk to anybody then. But who through the week? There was one chap who uh, I was trying to get a football out of the brambles by our house. And uh, I had shorts on. And a man walked past, walking his dog. He had trousers on, and he very kindly offered to, uh, to, to get the football for, for me and, and the kids. And, uh, and so I just began to chat. There was two unsuspecting people who came to my front door trying to raise money. And I had a chat. I went to buy a, a newspaper in the shop in Wave Away. And just say, how, how's your week going? I think the guy was so surprised, I, I think he thought I was going to rob him or something. But uh, I tell you, this is a new thing for me. It really is. To try and strike up conversation with people I come across. Now, obviously, they don't all get saved. But I believe it is a means by which we engage with our culture. That's what Paul did. He just sat down with who happened to be there. He began to chat Don't be put off if the people you are with are not your type of people. Excuse me. I worked in my last uh, job with a a company and and there were loads of people, loads of non-Christians there. I missed so many opportunities because I discounted those people as people who who I needed to, to reach out to with the gospel. Did I know them? Yes. Were they unsaved? Yes. So what was I doing? I stayed silent for far, far too long. You see, Paul spoke first. 
And then they became his type of people. They got saved. He invited them, they invited him back to their house. And the church was born. And when Paul wrote back to the Philippians years later, you read it in Philippians 1. Verse 4, he says to them, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day. He's saying, do you remember that day by the river when I was a stranger, but I just stopped to chat from that first day until now? He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. You see, the church had been born out of a random chat, a conversation, a chance encounter. So come on, let's, let's like I have, and I tell you, I've really done this, let's make a determined effort to not shut out the world around, but just to engage with conversation. I would say, talk about Jesus as soon as possible. That's what Paul would have done. We know the danger, don't we, of evangelism without friendship. And, and we don't want to go there, you know, where we don't care about people, we just want to see them saved. We, we not, don't want to be that type of people. But I think there's, an, there's a danger at the other extreme, where we go for friendship without evangelism. And we're trying to build relationship with people, and, and we're talking to them, and we're talking to them. We think, well, it's not quite time yet. It's, I, I don't quite want to do the, the, the Jesus thing yet. Well, come on, let's, let's do it hand in hand. Isn't Jesus the reason for everything in your life? Isn't he the reason you get up? Isn't he the reason you, you do your job? Isn't he the reason you do what you do in your spare time? Well, if he is, then surely he should crop up in conversation at an early stage. But let's chat with people. Okay, thirdly, he related to the culture. Let's look at Paul in Athens. It's a well-known story in Acts 17. It says this, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Now Athens was a place that prided itself on its ability to embrace new ideas. So any new religion, any new philosophy in Athens, they wanted to hear about it first. And they wanted to debate it and discuss it and accommodate it. And so consequently in that place, there were just loads and loads of altars and shrines and and temples. It was a a real kind of mix-up. And Paul spotted this altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Now when you stop and think about it, that's really stupid. There's an irony there. What are they doing worshipping something they don't know? They're worshipping it just in case it exists, but they have no knowledge whether it really does or not. It's ironic, it's actually a bit stupid. And not only that, as Paul looked at this altar here and he looked at all the idolatry around him, he could have thought, this is so abhorrent. 
This is so evil. When there is one true God in heaven who deserves all our worship and adoration. This idolatry, it it stinks. And so Paul could have really let rip, but he didn't. You see, his priority was to engage that culture with the gospel. To share the gospel with them. So Paul didn't jump in there with both feet and condemn them from their idolatry. Nor did he mock them and tell them how stupid they were and laugh at them for this this really odd, pathetic, ironic altar. Instead, he accepted their position and he steered them round to the truth. You see, he didn't condone it. He didn't say, well, this is great what you're doing. And actually, Paul's first reaction when he goes there, you can read it, is distress. He's actually kind of cut up by what he sees there. But what's he going to do? What's going to help these people? Is it going to help to go in and begin judging them for where they are? Actually, what's going to help these people is the gospel. It's only the gospel that brings the transformation. And so he accepted their position and steered it round to the truth. And, you know, we've got to accept people where they are. There's a, a classic joke, isn't there, with, from the two Ronnies, I think is where it comes from. And, oh, you probably know it, but it's very relevant at this point. And it's this sketch about the guy who's lost in his car and he's driving through a village and he spots a guy who he can ask for directions and so he stops and he winds down his window and he says can you tell me how to get to such and such and the guy leans on his stick and he says if you want to get there I wouldn't start from here and the guy understandably looks perplexed of course I've got to start from here here is where I am and you know Christians can act like the village idiot when we don't accept the place that people are starting in. When we say, no, you shouldn't do that. You, you mustn't think things about, you mustn't have that outlook. You mustn't look at things that way. And people will rightly come back and say, well, that is my outlook. That is the way I look at things. Do you know, people are loved by God. And their desires, the aspirations that they have are not bad. They just need fulfilling in Jesus. And so we need to begin with empathy, not with derision. So you've come across a person who likes to go out every Friday night and get smashed, get blind drunk. It's easy to condemn But actually a better thing might be to say to that person, do you know, I met up with some friends on Sunday night and I had the biggest high that I've had in a long time. And they say, well, really? They say, yeah, I was was worshipping God in in church. You know somebody who's not in a committed relationship, they, they just sleep around. And it's easy to judge, isn't it? Because it is wrong, it is sinful, it's also a bit stupid, that lifestyle. Well, it's not a bit stupid, it's very stupid. I, I'm, I'm convinced these, these aren't just kind of God's instructions for us for no reason. They're God's instructions for us because they honour him and it's the best way to live. But you can go in judgmental or you can tell them about a God 
who if they have a relationship with him will be 100% committed to them with a commitment that will just blow their mind. A person feels alone, introduce them to the God of love. People worship celebrities. Well, introduce Jesus as a celebrity. People are are searching for, for spirituality, but they don't go to church. They've rejected religion. Well, explain Christianity as a a relationship. You see, whatever people's experience, whatever people's view on life, the gospel is relevant to them. We don't make it relevant. We don't make the gospel relevant. It already is relevant. We simply have to show people that the gospel is relevant to them that it meets them exactly in the place they are at, in the way that they view the world. So to relate to the culture, we obviously need to understand it. And uh, at Brighton, Mark Driscoll, as he spoke, was very helpful in this subject. All Mark Driscoll stuff is available for download from Brighton. I, I would encourage you to do that. He was mentioning some ways of... of engaging with our culture, how, how we need to learn about the culture we live in. Listen to the news. Watch the news. Don't just watch the information, but actually look at the way it's portrayed, the value system that actually is, uh, is being communicated. Look at magazines. This is what Mark Driscoll said. I'll just repeat it. I mean, he, he said, go into a news agent, look at all the magazines on the racks, And look at all the covers, because every magazine cover gives you somebody's idea of heaven. And it might be motorbike heaven, or it might be gardening heaven, it might be sex heaven, but it's somebody's idea of heaven. And it tells you how our culture is working. Listen to conversations. Be an eavesdropper for Jesus. I don't mean that you sort of lurk around windows, but but when you're sat on the bus and there's a conversation going on behind you, listen. See what's making people tick. How are they thinking? How are they viewing life? Look in shop windows. Look at advertising. Understand the world in which we live. And you can see how the gospel is the answer to the needs that people have, to the desires that people are expressing. Okay, fourthly, he reasoned and argued. Let's look in uh, Thessalonica, first of all, in Acts 17. It says this, when, when Paul was in Thessalonica, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Let's look at another example. Let's go back to, to Athens, a bit earlier in the story, Acts 17 verse 16 says this. Let's have the next one. There we go. 
While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. So Paul would have generally begun by reading the scripture, I believe, because that, uh, that was the custom for Jude, begin by reading the scriptures. But he didn't leave it there. And he didn't just rely on his lifestyle to kind of fill in the gaps. No, he explained. He reasoned. And he argued and proved from scripture. Now, God has given people minds. He's given people intellects and an ability to reason. And of course, we look for the, the Holy Spirit to come and break in and, and, and turn a person's heart around and, and quicken them in, into life. Of course, the Holy Spirit has a vital role. But it's not wrong to appeal to a person's intellect. Because Christianity makes sense. It does. I've, don't fear that you will come across the, the fatal flaw in Christianity. No, there isn't one. There isn't one. Christianity makes sense. It says in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, this. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So we need to be ready. We need to be prepared to give an answer. And I think there are two aspects of that. We need to be prepared ourselves and we have to have some answers to the questions. Of course you need to read your Bible. You will find so many answers there directly in the pages of Scripture. Read your Bible. Get to grips with it. Ask yourself the questions and go looking for the answers. And that might mean reading around a bit and reading a few helpful books. But ask the questions. Why is Christianity right and Islam wrong? It is. There are answers. But go out and get the answers. How can there be so much suffering in the world when God is a God of love? It's a good question. And there is an answer. Go out and get the answers. Be prepared. Be ready to give an answer. And then there's another way in which we need to be ready. We need to have the right attitude. We need to have a willingness, a readiness to actually defend what it is we believe. Or when we hear just false teaching and, and, and lies being, being spoken and, and the Bible and Christianity and God himself being so badly misrepresented, it should stir something within us that says, no, I'm, I'm just not happy with that. I'm, I, I want to get in there and, and put things right and, and set the record straight. This is what Paul did when he was in Lystra. When God, Paul got to the place called Lystra, he was talking to people and across the crowd, he locked eyes with a guy who was crippled and he'd been crippled from birth. And he saw that this guy had faith to be healed. And so across the crowd, he commanded this guy to stand up. And he did. And at this point, the crowd went wild. And uh, they, they were obviously celebrating. They were amazed that this guy had been healed. Because they had a Greek mindset, they interpreted what had just happened 
within that kind of Greek thinking. And so they concluded that Paul and Barnabas must be incarnations of Greek gods. That Paul must be Hermes and Barnabas must be Zeus. And they began to worship them as Greek gods. Now Paul could have just shrugged his shoulders and walked away and thought, oh, well they got that a bit wrong, but never mind. But no, he was, he was kind of cut up about this. He ran out into the crowd and said, you've got it wrong. Let me put the record straight. And he began to explain to them and reason with them. He said, look, the God of creation, it's all about the God of creation. We're just flesh and blood like you are. We're humans. But, but the creator almighty God who gives you the rain that, 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 that makes your crops grow, that gives you food, he's the one that we worship. He's the one that has the power to heal. So be ready to explain and defend and straighten things out. And uh, as 1 Peter 3 says, do this with gentleness and respect. There's no point winning an argument but losing a person's respect. Or getting a person to a point where they are tongue-tied, they don't know how to reply, but actually they go away thinking, well, he's a bit arrogant, isn't he? No, we need to be gentle and polite and calm. I have to watch myself. I cannot be calm. Um, you know, you might think I'm a very measured person, but get me locked in a theological debate and uh, I could get a bit, you know, come on. So uh, be calm, be respectful, be considerate. Norman Geisler, who was a guy who uh, has given his life to, to the subject of apologetics, he says this, don't just argue with someone who will not listen to reason. Or you will be just as foolish as he. But if you are able to show someone the error of his thinking in a way that he can understand, perhaps he will see God's wisdom rather than relying on his own. And this is what Jesus did, wasn't it? When Jesus had risen from the dead and and he was on the road to to, uh, Emmaus with with his two disciples, they didn't recognise him. They didn't know who he was. And Jesus could have appeared to them. He could have given them a sort of a powerful encounter with God and it would have opened their eyes and it would have done the job. But Jesus didn't. He began to reason and explain biblical truth. He said, look, can't you see? It it had to be that way. Let let me show you from from the prophets, from Isaiah. Let let me show you. You know, don't despise the explanation of biblical truth. You might be reaching out to somebody a friend, a neighbour, a family, whatever, and thinking, if only God would heal them, if only God would turn their situation around powerfully, they would come running to God. Well, do you know, that may be true. That may be exactly what God, by his grace, does. But don't despise the simple explanation of truth, the bringing of the gospel, The the answer in their questions. You're seeing it like this, but have you ever thought about it like this? The Bible would speak into that. It it would say this in that situation. It's powerful to engage with people's reason. And then lastly, number five, he used signs and wonders. Romans 15, where we started, verses 18 and 19 say this, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me 
in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and miracles, through the power of the Holy Spirit. The only thing that Paul wanted to boast about was how he had led people to obedience in Christ. And the way he had led people to obedience in Christ is by what he had said, yes, but also by what he had done. And as Paul engaged with the culture around him, signs, miracles and wonders played a big part of what he did. We saw it in in Lystra, in that example I just gave you, the crippled man walks. You see it in Ephesus. It seems to increase, if anything, through Paul's ministry, the, the occurrence of miracles. By the time he gets to Ephesus in Acts 19, you read this. God did extraordinary miracles. It should be up there. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. What about the ordinary miracles? They were obviously getting a bit dull. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and evil spirits left them. And you know, when it comes to engaging our culture, we can be quite concerned, can't we, about fitting in? about building friendships, about not looking the weird Christian. But we also need, I believe, to be taking opportunities for God's power to work. We touched something here last month in the area of healing. And, you know, I don't want to lose it. I don't want it to slip away. It was a rise in faith. In the area of healing. And I just believe we've got to keep pressing in there. We've got to keep looking for opportunities. It all started with the Lakeland stuff, didn't it? Which is still going on. And, and you know, I encourage you to look at what's happening in Lakeland, if you get an opportunity, on God TV. It's not because it's not wacky, because it is wacky. It's not because we want to reproduce everything that's happening there over here in some kind of fictitious, false way. But when you look at that sort of stuff, you just think, yeah, God is a healing God. And it's just a gift of his mercy. We don't deserve it. Todd Bentley doesn't deserve it. But God does it. And I believe God wants to do it here. That God wants to move amongst our communities with healing power. Because that is how we engage our culture with the gospel. And I think we should keep sharing stories. We need to keep our faith on the boil for healing. So if you have prayed for somebody and they've been healed, then share it. Every morning, every Sunday morning, I would like to hear testimonies. If you've been healed personally, come and share it. We need to keep our faith going. We need to keep, not not kind of slip back into some sort of normality, but actually normality to be an experience of God moving among us. I'm in favour of healing on the streets. That's, uh, if you don't know, an initiative that some people here are involved in, which is great. It's, uh, it's a number of churches in Winchester have joined together to be on the high street and to invite the public as they walk past to, uh, to be prayed for for healing. I think it's a good thing. I'm in favour of it. I personally have not been a part of it. 
And I don't feel that I should stand here this morning and say, as a church, we must all get behind healing on the streets. Some of you are, some of you want to, that's great. I don't think we all need to. But there is something I would say to all of us. And that is that we look for opportunities ourselves to pray for people that they would be healed. And not only that, to pray into whatever situation people are up against, that it would be unlocked and turned around, that they might give glory to God. So when your neighbour over the garden wall says, I've got this jippy thing and it, I just, I've been to the doctor, it won't go away, say, can I pray for that? When you're at work and your work colleague says, I've got this kind of condition, this syndrome, it's, I don't know what it is, I'm a bit worried. Say, can I pray for that? You see, God's power is available to you. His authority has been given to you as you go out and live your life. As you engage with the world around you. That's where we need to see signs and wonders. In the natural everydayness of of our real reality of our lives. So that's what we need to do. From Jerusalem all the way round to Illyricum, Paul could say he had fully proclaimed the gospel. And you know, we mustn't give the world half measures. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you might wonder what this guy's been talking about. In fact, if you are a Christian, you might be wondering, no, let's not go there. The reason we talk about the gospel is because the gospel is the best news the world has ever had or ever will have. It's the news that although we are locked in sin and death, that is such an affront to a holy God, that holy God is also a loving God, in that he made a way to deal with our sin, to deal with your sin and my sin. And that way meant him sending his son, Jesus, to die on the cross, to pay the price, to take the penalty, to feel the full force of God's wrath that should have been directed at you for your sin, but actually was carried by Jesus on the cross. So that you can come to him and say, I want to make Jesus my Lord. I want to trust in him and his work on the cross for dealing with my sin. And that free gift of eternal life then becomes yours. That relationship that God so desires with you becomes yours. The righteousness that is a part of God himself becomes yours. And will be yours for eternity. It is a wonderful, wonderful message. It's a message that the world needs to hear. And if you've never put your life right with God, then it's a message that you need to hear. And you need to act upon Even this morning, it is a message that you need to act upon. God is waiting for you. So desiring to know you as his own child. Accepted, adopted into his family. If you want to put your life right with Jesus this morning, don't leave this place, don't shrug it off. Say, yeah, actually I can do something. But why not now? Why don't I do something about that now? And I want you, we're going to worship again in just a moment, but I want you, if that's you, if, if you feel yet, yeah, maybe you were here last week, maybe this is your first time here, but you think, yeah, actually this makes sense, this is not just general information, this is about me, then I want you to come and talk to me afterwards.
And I just want to pray with you and just kind of cement in what, what, you've, uh, what you've decided to do. But come on, this is the wonderful message of the gospel. Let's make sure we engage our culture with it, fully proclaiming the gospel.